This Washington Post Live podcast is in partnership with Showtime. Don't miss the Comey Rule, streaming now on Showtime. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Actor Jeff Daniels, director Billy Ray, and former FBI director James Comey joined the Washington Post to discuss the upcoming television miniseries, The Comey Rule, which is based on Comey's book, A Higher Loyalty. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Ann Hornaday, the chief film critic for The Washington Post, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce the writer, director, and producer of The Comey Rule, Billy Ray, and one of the stars of that project, Jeff Daniels. Billy, Jeff, welcome. Thank you for having us. It's uh, really an honor. Glad to be here. Good to see you both. Uh, Later in the program, we will be joined by former FBI Director James Comey, who, of course, wrote A Higher Loyalty on which the Comey rule is based. But first, Billy, with movies like Shattered Glass and Breach and last year's Richard Jewell, you are really the master of this form of fact-based thriller. Tell us, how do you begin to wrap your arms around this material? Well, that's very kind of you to say, and I'm not sure I can accept that compliment, but I appreciate it nonetheless. Um, I'm fascinated by real life characters. I I find real uh, human behavior to be more interesting and more idiosyncratic than any character I can create. Um, And that was certainly true in the case of the Comey rule. You know, you've got Comey and you've got Trump and they both feel kind of Shakespearean in their own way. Uh, The way to put a story together like this is first to do all the research you can humanly do. Find out everything there is to know about your, um, this particular circumstance. That meant for me getting on a plane and going to DC and interviewing as many people as would sit down with me. And then assembling all of that research together. Do you know how to do a a sculpture of an elephant? You you start with a block of granite and then you chip away everything that's not an elephant. Well, in this case, uh, that research is your block of granite. And then you step back and you say, what's the story I'm trying to tell? Uh, And that's the elephant. And you strip away everything that isn't that elephant. For me, that was, I I want to do a story about how heartbreaking it can be to be a public servant. And that's the story that we told. You know, um, writing for the Washington Post and being in Washington, uh, I have become more acutely aware because I'm surrounded, my readers are often people who were into either participants in these events or uh, observe them or are scholars who have been studying them all their lives. And they're, and I understand now how disorienting it can be to watch a movie based on something you know very well and then have it veer from what you know to be the facts. So tell us a little bit about your own rules of the road when you're deciding whether and when and how to take artistic liberties. Well, on this one, uh, the rules of the road were pretty strict. Uh, We knew we were going to have a target on our backs uh, from both the right and the left. Uh, So we had to be truthful. Um, I'm not a documentary filmmaker. I'm not a journalist. My job is to do the dramatic interpretation of events. But that said, uh, we had to stick to the truth. Um, Happily, in this case, or perhaps not so happily, um, the truth is so dramatic and so riveting Uh, You didn't have to invent anything. Um, We stayed uh, very, very closely to everything that I could uh, substantiate uh, in my own research. And a lot of it was public-facing reporting. A lot of it comes from the IG report, uh, the DOJ IG report. Um, As I said, uh, the, the truth of the matter in this case is so harrowing and so infuriating 
uh, I think invention would have been overkill. Right. I mean, I I am not um, I'm not a completist in the TikTok of of these events. It, it seemed to me that you really did tack very closely to to what happened. There's a one moment of sort of compression um, when Mr. Comey goes to Florida to investigate the Pulse the Pulse tragedy. Um, yes. Was that just in, for the sake of, com again, compression and, and economical storytelling? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there has to be some economy to your storytelling. There has to be compression of events. And in some cases, there have to be composites of characters. Um, but as long as you're being truthful to the spirit of events, I think you're fine. I mean, Comey got on a plane and flew to, uh, to Orlando and, and wanted to meet with the first responders after the Pulse Club tragedy. All of that is a matter of fact. So we depicted it. Uh, we switched the order of two events on that uh, on that particular day, but that's all we did. Jeff, I was struck. Um, your performance in this film in this series is so it's so intense without being necessarily <laughs> externalized. I'm, Mr. Comey is a famously buttoned-down guy. How do you go about externalizing? Such an internal character, and you're 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 having to play so many emotions, kind of silently and stoically. Talk us through that, just technically as an actor. I, I think one of the things that Billy and I came to, and I relied on Billy a lot, especially early on, because I, I was coming out of To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, and that was a year-long run, and I was I was whacked, and and Billy was a great great source of it, and one of the things. A resource and one of the things we came to early on and it harkened back to when, when October 2016 when when Hillary's email investigation was reopened you were going what was what Comey what's he thinking what is he doing and the movie shows you what he was thinking and I've always said as a film actor you know if you you can't just put a blank canvas up there and expect people to paint the story on you. And, and that's that's one way of film acting. I've always said, put a thought in your head. Think what the guy's thinking. And this was a perfect example to kind of execute that approach to acting. You've got the book where he tells you what he was thinking, the audio book where you can hear him tell you what he was, I mean, I had so much. I could hear his voice in my head. And there were times too that 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 I could make a face, I could, I could, just enough so I felt that I was making, I, I looked exactly like Jim Comey did, even though I knew I didn't. We wanted you to go in. We wanted you to, to get in there. As one critic said, I could read your mind and I'm going touchdown. We did it, we did it. And that's that's what it was, what we were trying to do is show you him thinking and thinking moment to moment to moment on what to do between making the decision so often between a rock and a hard place. Hey, Anne, can I just amplify that real quickly? Please. Um, because it's part of the reason why Jeff was the guy to play this part. Trump is the bells and whistles part in this show. He gets all the fireworks. And I needed someone to play Comey who could trust the power of his own stillness, who could trust his own silence and know that he wasn't gonna get blown off the screen. A lot of actors wouldn't have the confidence to do what Jeff did in this part. If you look at the loyalty dinner, it's eight and a half pages of dialogue, and the vast majority of it belongs to Trump. And Jeff trusted that his reactions would be as powerful as what Brendan Gleeson was doing. That's a pretty extraordinary thing. Um, and it's, it's why he was so right for the part. 
Absolutely. Very, very well said on both your parts, because I think I've often said acting as a critic, the hardest thing for me to quantify and to 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 write about is acting because it's so ineffable. You know, it's just especially when it's on that level that, that Jeff's doing in this piece. So thank you for giving us language um, to, to describe <laughs> what you're doing there. You know, when when Jeff, when you mentioned going back to the email announcement in 2016, did did you, and this goes to both of you, did you have to set aside your, I mean, we all had reactions, right? We all have our own um, emotional reaction to that moment and our own memories of that moment. How, what degree do you have to set all those things aside in order to enter this story in a in a kind of um, a clean way, you know, or a, or a bias-free way? It's always the approach, uh, at least for, it has been for me, is you you flush everything you believe in and take on everything that the character believes in. Uh, his politics, his beliefs, his personality, his strengths, his weaknesses, everything. And that's who you are. And to play him truthfully, that's what you have to do. Occasionally, if a character has a similar view of, say, politics or something that you do, okay, then you can kind of use yourself. But you have to inhabit someone else. And so... From day one, it's delete everything. I mean, I think also coming off Mockingbird and playing Atticus Finch with the ghost of Gregory Peck, you know, hanging over me, it was a good warm up for Jim Comey because I had to delete. I remember being on 60 Minutes and Steve Croft says, I mean, Gregory Peck, I said, delete, delete, delete. He didn't make the movie. I don't care. I'm originating the role starting now. That's how you have to approach it. Otherwise, you're going to get killed. You won't survive it. And for me, the whole the whole challenge the whole challenge for me was everybody uh, thinks they know what happened in 2016, and of course that's going to be seen through the lens of of the particular news that they were watching. If you were watching Fox News, you have one experience of it. If you're watching MSNBC, you have an entirely different experience of it. But everybody believes they know what happened. And for me, the challenge and the opportunity was: what if we took people inside the rooms? at the FBI, at the DOJ, at the White House, where these decisions were being made that so profoundly affected us uh, uh, as, as a democracy, then once you've disciplined yourself in that way, your own personal feelings about Donald Trump uh, actually don't matter. And they really don't enter that much into the process of, of telling the story. You are just capturing what your characters are experiencing. What do those characters want and how are those characters trying to get it? That's it. That's a full-time job. That is uh, that is as much bandwidth as you have as a writer and a director. And I think it makes for better storytelling. Well, for sure, um, one of the strengths of this piece is how it does take us inside these bad to poor to disastrous decisions. I mean, like you said, it's a rock and a hard place in so many of these meetings and encounters. You're, you do make it so palpable. Um, just how impossible some of these choices really were. Um, Jeff, you've played real life people before, but rarely somebody who's still living and <laughs> there to give you notes. Did you did you meet with Mr. Comey in order to prepare? You mentioned hearing the the book on tape. Uh, no, I read the book, the audio book. Jim helped uh, that that helped to hear. I have so much going in. I mean, YouTube, you've got Comey on the Colbert show. You can see his sense of humor. I mean, I, just as an actor playing any character, I had a ton of material. Plus, I had Billy. 
So I, I was good. I, I reached out to Jim Comey and, and he was very nice. Uh, I was, again, in Mockingbird. I said, if you're in New York City, you know where to find me. Uh, would love to talk to you if you want. And uh, he said, no plans to come up, but, you know, good luck with it. And, you know, and I, I took that as a, I didn't want to impose. Uh, whether you like him or agree with him or not, the guy's been vilified. And I didn't want to go down to his house and watch him eat dinner. I just didn't, I, I wasn't, I didn't need to do that. So I didn't meet Jim until two months in. And, uh, and, and you hope that he likes it, but that's not your job. It's a bonus if he does. You just want to play it honestly and truth and, you know, like uh, objectively. You want to be able to step back from it and go, okay, I think this is what he's writing about. This is what he's thinking. Go. Um, there's not a lot of, uh, there wasn't a lot of handholding, you know, me walking over going, do you like that? Did you, I mean, was that, do you think that was, no, there was none of that. No, that was with right. and I, one other thing about that. And, um, you know, when, when you're directing, you always have a headset on and you hear, uh, the actors right before a take because their mics are live. And, uh, I noticed in the first couple days of the shoot, right before every take, I would hear Jeff say Ashcroft. Ashcroft, Ashcroft. And finally I walked up to him, I said, what the hell is Ashcroft? What are you talking about before every take? He said, it's the only word that I know I can do in Jim Comey's voice. So I remind myself of that voice right before every take. It's a pretty good process. Yeah, it, and yeah, I bailed on that Jim. Week. Yeah, I, I, it wasn't working after the second week and I just bailed on it. <laughs> well, I'm going to play, this is a good time for us, I think, to play a clip, which in many ways exemplifies exactly what you're doing here. This is an incredibly intense scene of the press conference that President Trump called involving the law enforcement chiefs from all around the country. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people will be familiar with this scene. It is dripping with ang unspoken anxieties, um, and it is... <laughs> A, a quiet tour de force on the part of Jeff Daniels. Let's take a look. Thank you all for coming. We're going to have a great eight years together. This is a good room for me because law enforcement people all love Trump, military people too. Probably everyone in this room voted for me. I won't ask you to raise your hands if you did, but I guarantee a big portion did. Because guess what? We're all on the same wavelength, folks. So I want to thank you all for the fantastic job you did keeping our inaugural events safe. I know it wasn't easy with all those people, biggest inaugural ever, and you know better than anybody how that's been distorted by the dishonest media, fake news, but you did your jobs. And <laughs> James, Jim Comey, FBI director. Let's take some pictures, say hello to each other, okay? Where's a good spot? Right here. He's more famous than me. That's your father's oh shit face.
forward to working with you. Let's take a picture. Oh. I get I get sort of flop sweat just watching that. It's so it's so kind of viscerally painful. Um and and it brings in Mr. Comey's family, which plays a pretty big part in this series. It was really a great opportunity to see that side of his life and meet his wife, Patrice, who seems like an amazing person, played beautifully played by Jennifer Ellie. Um, Jeff, take us into that part of that world. I mean, I think we we do think of the FBI and the and the um, the TikTok of those events when we think of Mr. Comey, but what was it like? Tell us how you played those more emotional scenes with the with the wife and family and the daughters. Well, it, you, certainly Comey at that point is, isn't the button-down FBI guy. That deadpan face that he that these guys are, and Jim was so is so brilliant at using. I mean, you can't read him if you're across the table from him. And you're a, you know a mobster or whatever you are. But at home with the family, you know he's he's more open and he's he, and. And when they, you know, started to pressure him or push him or just come on, you know, um, the isolation uh, that he felt, uh, that I found that he felt, uh, was just, I mean, he, he bum, 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 bum. It was, it was real. And uh, those were easy scenes to play because you're so open going in and family couldn't have been more supportive but even they were pushing and and he was he was a man who at times was very alone right i mean it's 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 interesting to me that it seems like it's 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 emotionally like you said he's isolated almost everywhere he's just a man out you know trying to kind of walk through these situations the best he can and and um ultimately alone when it comes to the to the actual decisions in their in their ramifications, it's really poignant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Did you take that? Did you take that same? Did it feel that way playing it? I mean, did you just sort of feel like you were <laughs> a lonely man there on set? Uh, no, but it was family's a big deal to me, and it doesn't take much to kind of substitute and personalize and. What if your own family leaned on you and you knew you couldn't tell them or you knew that what they were saying you couldn't do, um, even them? Um, it doesn't take much to get me there. Right. That's tough. Billy, you make a well, fascinating... It's real. That's what we're doing. I mean, that's what, uh, you know, and Billy knows at this level, um, you know, if you can't emotionally get there, we'll get somebody who can and and that's part <laughs> of the actor's toolbox is you've got to you got to open yourself up and 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 put the heart out so everybody can see it action and then cut thank you put it back in that's part of what we do um i was going to ask billy or i want to ask you about this fascinating uh character named rod rosenstein Played by Scoot McNary, <laughs> who's this kind of Salieri figure in this in this narrative, and also a little bit of a Greek chorus. Um, he, uh, to me, he was a character who gets a lot of. Again, uh, we all have opinions on James Comey, um, and he voices a lot of the more negative ones. Uh, he kind of gets <laughs> them out of the way in terms of just like 
just addressing right out of the of the gate, like, yep, he's a showboat and he's arrogant and he's this and he's that. Um, walk us through that creative decision. How did you come to find him as your as your sort of Shakespearean um, narrator there? Well, that's a great insight, Anne, because that is exactly the idea. Um, there was such an informational load that had to be delivered in this story. Um, I knew we were going to need narration of some kind. So I thought to myself, all right, who who could narrate the story of James Comey? Well, the most interesting version of that would be someone who doesn't like James Comey. And, and that's Rod Rosenstein. Um, but just as importantly, I know how divided uh, America is about James Comey. I know how polarizing he is as a figure. And again, I know that both on the right and the left, he has his detractors. So I wanted to announce within the first minute of the story, I wanted the audience to know, I know that you don't know how to feel about James Comey. And I'm going to let somebody articulate uh, the most negative point of view about James Comey that I possibly can right off the bat. I thought that would relax everybody. Um, I, I hope that's effective. Um, you know, Rod was the right choice because I do feel he is the Salieri to Comey's Mozart. I think, um, you know, he asked Comey to come speak uh, to Rosenstein's uh, assembled team in Baltimore about leadership. He asked Comey uh, to come into the DAG's office when uh, Rosenstein had been uh, named DAG to talk to him about how to do the job more effectively. Uh, he understood that Comey was a great leader. And I think he felt, I think, Rod felt that he himself uh, was not a great leader and that he had things to learn from Comey. And he did all this while knowing that he was about to be absolutely critical in the firing of Comey. Um, that says a lot about who uh, Rod Rosenstein is. And, um, you know, I felt a twinge of guilt as we were making the series uh, that I that I was uh, roughing him up a little bit. Um, you know, he is a person with a family and kids, and, and I don't take any pleasure in that. Um, what I've learned since we wrapped about what his actual role was in stifling the Mueller investigation, uh, I've now come to the conclusion that we were too easy on him. It also, I think, um, just narratively, getting that, like you said, getting that addressed in that first minute really does let you then get into this TikTok, which this is just a, um, it's a brilliant procedural. And I want to have us take a look at another clip that really gets to the heart of that. This is a recreation of one of the discussions uh, that Mr. Comey had with his colleagues at the FBI about whether to publicize the reopening of the Hillary Clinton email investigation in October of 2016. Let's take a look. Thoughts? My fear is how partisan we'll look if word gets out and we've said nothing. Saying something would be worse, and we don't know categorically that NYO will leak it. Wiener's lawyers could leak it, DOJ could leak it. It's not close home. That's my fear, too. We don't announce, and three days before the election, word leaks. The FBI has reopened the investigation on Hillary Clinton. Not told anyone about it. Where's that put the credibility of this institution? Another scenario. Hillary's just been elected. A Republican-controlled House is drafting bills of impeachment before she's even sworn in. Now imagine we find something incriminating. We present those findings to House Judiciary. They ask us when we first found these emails, and we'll be obliged to say that we learned of them a month before the election. 
The world will conclude that we actively concealed this from the American public in order to tip the election. Or does that leave the credibility of this institution? Any letter that you put out at this juncture is going to be interpreted by the public to mean that we found new evidence of wrongdoing. If I don't inform Congress on this, I should be fired, run out of town. But boss, what if our doing this results in the election of Donald Trump as president? Um, Billy, that, that is such a granular scene. I know, of course, you did um, work mostly from a higher loyalty, Mr. Comey's book, and you mentioned the IG report. And then you also mentioned, did you, you mentioned actually interviewing people who uh, participated in these events. Did you learn anything new? Did you, are we, are you breaking any news with this, with this series? Well, that's up to the individual, uh, watcher um if uh, i should say viewer if if you're watching this and you have been studying this on a granular level i think you'll see that the information is is put together in a way that perhaps might feel new to you um if you are someone who's just been a casual consumer of the news i think there's a lot of new material in here and a lot of ground uh that's broken the big thing for me is again going back to that idea of what's the story we're telling the story that we're telling is how heartbreaking it can be to be a public servant the the people in that room that you see agonizing over this incredibly consequential uh decision they're what donald trump calls the deep state um in a gross mischaracterization um when in fact they are just patriots who care a lot about their country and uh and our democracy and the apolitical intentions of the institutions uh, that make that democracy possible. Um, you can question the results of those decisions. I don't think you can question the integrity of the process by which those uh, decisions were derived. Uh, those people cared a lot. Jim Comey cared a lot. They assessed all kinds of things. And, and part of what the story is about for me is to say to the American public and actually the world, because it's an international release, to say, okay, be Jim Comey for five minutes. Here are the facts on the ground. Here are the pressures. Here are the constraints. Here are the political realities. What would you do? Um, that's not an apology for Jim Comey, and it's not meant to be one. It's an exploration into who he was and why he made the decisions that he did. Um, and on that level, I think it's very new ground. And you know, um, earlier this summer, there uh, a release date was announced for this project that would have been after the presidential election. I know it meant a lot to you and probably to most of the members of your creative team that it that it be released earlier. Could you tell us about, about why that was important to you? Sure. Well, first understand that Jeff and everybody else that was involved with this series, uh, they signed up because it was going to be aired before the election. That was always the assumption. And we were working our tail off to make sure that it could be aired uh, before the election. We had a delivery date um, such that we would hand it in in May so that they could air it uh, in late May or June. That was always the plan. Um, in March, we began to hear that that plan was changing and that uh, Viacom wanted to air it after the election. I objected to that for two giant reasons. One, just on a selfish level, um, my cast had delivered me some spectacular performances, and you know, notably Mr. Daniels. And I wanted the world to see it in as big a number as we could get. 
And there was no question that if you air this uh, before the election, it's white hot and you get a lot of eyeballs. And if you air it after the election, it's historical artifact and you just don't get as many. So that was one thing. But the second thing was part of our story is about what Russia did to our election in 2016. And that's not a matter of conjecture. That's a matter of fact. I felt it was really important that the American public get to see that in real dramatic terms before they go to the polls in 2020 so that they could make informed decisions. Um, and that is not me saying to America, here's how you should vote. It's, it's me saying to America, do you want Russia, an adversary of this country, to have that big a hand in picking our president? I, I don't think Americans do. I don't think even the most ardent uh, Republicans think that that's a good idea. So it was important to me that this get out. Right. It, and it wasn't lost on me that it was Rod Rosenstein who, who told Mueller to uh, not to do the counterintelligence investigation. So in a way, this miniseries is that counterintelligence investigation that we, that we are now <laughs> privy to. This is a perfect time to welcome our next guest, James Comey, former director of the FBI, author of A Higher Loyalty, inspiration for the Comey rule. Welcome, sir. Thanks for having me in. Hey, guys. Hello. Hi, Jim. Thanks for being here. So James Comey, Billy Ray calls and says, I want to do the movie of your life. What goes through <laughs> your mind? Uh, dread, fear, loathing, delight, dread, terror, all of the above? I'm not fleet of foot, but my instinct was to run in the other direction as fast and as far as I could. And so I said, not only no, but hell no, for a long time, for weeks and months, that I didn't want to be part of such a thing. And they talked me into it. Okay, let's start with the, with the why not. What was your biggest, what can go wrong with something like this? What's your biggest fear when you, when you lay yourself open for well, something Let's like this? start with the fact that the guy who's going to play him was in Dumb and Dumber. Let's just start there. <laughs> And it's not, it's not like Robert Redford gets to play. It, it, let's just start there. <laughs> that was a selling point. The, uh, I, I didn't want to write a book. And I remember my first draft of my book, I wanted to leave the Trump stuff out. And my literary agents told me that was insane. And they convinced me I had to write a book because I wanted to share a message echoing the one that Billy shared about institutional values about the importance of these people and the institutions they represent in American life. And so I talked myself and was talked into writing a book and I thought that's it. The idea of something on a screen seemed too weird, too different to me. And honestly, look, I'll, I'm, I'll confess to you, I'm sensitive to criticism and I really don't like this narrative that I'm a showboat. I don't think it's true, but I'm still sensitive to it. And so the idea that I would cooperate in a screen production of my book made me cringe. And so I said no. And the way I got talked into it was during a phone call, Billy was on, one of the participants asked me why I wrote my book and I explained. And I said, I want to especially reach young people because I'm worried that there's so much ugliness about our government and our institutions and in public life that they're gonna withdraw and not step forward and make us better and lead us. And there was a moment of silence on the phone. And then one of the people said, Shane Salerno, one of the producers, end up as a producer, said, that's great, glad you wrote the book. If you sell a million copies, it'll be a huge bestseller. If a show has a million viewers, it's canceled today. And then he waited and he said, you have to get over your discomfort. If you really want to achieve your mission, 
of reaching especially young audiences. They're not going to buy your book, but they will watch a show that illustrates the things you hope to communicate through your book. And so I talked it over with Patrice and decided, yeah, I would I would cooperate. Okay, so Anne, can I tell you uh, my my half of that phone call? Um, I, I read Director Comey's book uh, overnight, the night before it was published, uh, also sent to me by the same brilliant producer, Shane Salerno. I said, I'm in. So they said, okay, now you, you have to audition for Director Comey, and that was gonna be uh, via phone. It wasn't gonna be in person, which certainly would have been my preference. So the call was Shane Salerno in LA and me in my office and Director Comey uh, in, in McLean, Virginia. And I think he had two book agents from DC and two book agents from New York also on the call. I, I could have that wrong, but book agents. So for the first 10 minutes, I'm pitching how I'm gonna adapt the material and it's going great. I mean, I think uh, he's liking everything I'm saying. And then one of his uh, book agents said, how are you gonna handle the Hillary email thing? And I said, well, I think we've gotta head that, we've gotta take that on. Uh, I don't wanna do an unflawed character. And, and the fact is, you know, dramatically it's Frankenstein. I mean, you created the monster and the monster destroyed you. And director Comey said, um, how, how did I uh, create the monster? I said, well, sir, you got him elected. And there was this pause and, and he said, there were other factors. I said, that may be, but you created a six point swing and that was enough. And the point of the story is he picked me anyway, which tells me everything I needed to know about director Comey. I would not have picked me. I absolutely would not have picked me. Um, and, and what followed was a year and a half of working very closely together in which he had a million opportunities to manipulate me or spin me or steer me into a more flattering portrayal of him. And he never took that opportunity, not once. That, that is another thing I wouldn't have done. If someone were making a movie about me, I would have been spinning them like crazy. Um, but that's Director Comey. He has that level of integrity. And that to me is what made him worth spending two years of my life on. Well, you've actually just answered another one of my questions. And, and um, Director Comey, when you mentioned showboat, that's one of the words that the, that the dramatized Rod Rosenstein uses to describe you. Um, did, but you didn't ask for that to be taken out. Did you have any conditions going in on this? I mean, were you given the opportunity to say yay or nay on, on particular things? No, I chose Billy because I knew he would tell the truth. I'm a, I'm a human being, I have strengths and weaknesses, and I knew he would tell the truth about those. And I really didn't care that much about how I was portrayed. I wanted the institution shown in an honest way because there's been a whole lot of lying about the FBI and we all need that institution. And I knew that Billy knew that institution and I knew that Billy had a passion for telling the truth. And those two things are what sold me. Thank you. I'd like to uh, go to another clip now. This is um, this is another chilling scene, and I understand, Director Comey, this is the one scene that that you actually watched being filmed in real time in Toronto. This is that famous dinner scene with uh, James Comey and President Donald J. Trump, where he um, asks for your loyalty. Let's take a look. It's true, Mr. President. You can fire the FBI director at any time for any reason or for no reason at all, but. I want to stay because I love the Bureau and I love my job and I believe I'm doing it well. One thing I never had to think about in the Trump Organization because I did so much myself. You know, people think we were so big, but truth is I did everything. 
and I have to rely on people. I have all these idiot advisors around who think they got me elected. You know, I actually listen to TV people because they got to get ratings every day. White House advisor can guess wrong, still keep his job. Not the TV guys. A lot of smart people in that business. Well, you can rely on me, sir, to tell you that... I need loyalty. So, Director Comey, um, did you provide notes when they were actually filming this scene? Were you able to kind of um, direct that a little bit from your uh, vantage point? I was too busy trying not to throw up on my shoes. It, <laughs> it was the first time I'd been to a movie set, and I'm sitting there in the dark watching this. And Jeff Daniels and Brendan Gleeson recreated what I lived in a way that was so real, I found it deeply unsettling. And I paid them an honest compliment. I, I said to them both, you've ruined my day because I had to go back to that. I hope you all know that this, the Clinton piece and the Trump piece are some of the hardest things I've ever been part of. And I find it really difficult to relive. I think it's important to tell the story, but sitting there in the dark on that little director's chair, even though I wasn't the director, it, it hit me uh, like a wave. Jeff, did you get any, did you glean any insights from uh, Director Comey himself about how to play it? I, I loved it when he said, when he came around the corner, Billy said, somebody's here and I knew he was coming. And, um, and, and, and he, that's all you need, you know, Jim to say, uh, you, you've ruined my day. You brought back the emotion. You back, brought back the struggle on um, the awkwardness and the of, of feeling of what to say, how to handle this, all that. That's my job in a nutshell. That's all I'm supposed to do is, without saying a lot, show you all of that. And if the guy I'm playing saw it, touchdown, I'm there. And yeah, I hope you can tell, you can tell because Jeff Daniels has a gift. My mind was racing. I wasn't moving. A whole lot of times I was trying not to blink and my mind is just racing. How do I protect the FBI? What do I say next? What if I say the wrong thing? What's the right word to deliver here? I don't want a war with the president of the United States, but I'm trying to maintain a distance that the American people have wanted since Watergate. How do I do that now? And, and watching that scene, Jeff doesn't say anything, but especially my family can see the turmoil just looking at his eyes and the way he's holding his jaw. It's incredible. And it still upsets me to watch. <laughs> I think that sets all of us to watch. I can, I can, I can uh, pretty much vouch for that. And th that actually leads me, I'm going to go off book a little bit. I hadn't prepared this question, but Director Comey, you're not alone now of people that have been, um, have confronted President Trump in terms of his attitudes towards institutions and um, institutional memory. And many of them have broken and broken publicly, and maybe they've written books or maybe they've gone to the press. But are you surprised that more haven't gone public with their misgivings and their objections to what's going on in, in the administration? Yes, I'll start with 53 Republican members of the United States Senate, each of whom took an oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States, and then twisted and spindled and mutilated that oath in the impeachment hearings and in so many other awful acts of this president. And I think they tell themselves a story, which is probably something like, 
yeah, I know he's awful, but the American people need me here because of what I bring to this nation of ours. And so if I stand up, I might lose a primary or if I'm in the executive branch, I might get fired and that would deprive the American people of my services. And I really shouldn't do this to my nation. And I hoped for the last now almost four years that more of them would look in the mirror and say, so what am I going to say to my grandchildren about this? But they haven't. They're telling themselves a story and so they're collaborators. But we all need to keep receipts because God willing, there'll be a different president come next January. And a whole lot of these folks are going to say, I wasn't there at the Trump. I did. No, not me. And we have to remember what's going on so that it isn't repeated. Um, we do seem to be at this bizarre stalemate now with an almost dysfunctional Congress with a, a Supreme Court that is teetering on illegitimacy, you know, depending on how things go, and this kind of permanent state of investigations. You know, we have the, the, um, the Durham investigation, and then we have the internal FBI investigation of the Flynn case, and we have so many others. Is this, is this the new normal in terms of how politics is going to be practiced? And if so, how do we right the ship? Does any, and this is to all of you or any of you. Well, I'll hit it first. I, we've been in dark places before. We always come out of it because the nature and character of this country always holds, and I'm optimistic it'll hold again. And the path back to getting closer to those values is to have leadership of integrity. And I believe Joe Biden should be the next president of the United States. I hope he'll pick a great woman or man to be attorney general, and they will work to restore those that commitment to values that you saw when President Gerald Ford picked Ed Levy, the president of the University of Chicago, to be the attorney general of the United States. Republican president picking a guy, he doesn't even know his politics, and he didn't care. He said, help us restore an institution that has to be at the center of American life. And Levy did it, and Ford did it, and then Carter followed it. And that put us on a path that we've been on for 50 years. We need to get back to it, and the path to the getting back is vote and vote for someone who will restore those institutions. I would amplify that only by saying that part of what this, our story is about is something that I think the American public gets wrong for very obvious reasons. Um, we tend to think of the FBI as an institution, and of course it's not. It's a group of people who are stewards of an institution. Um, but the building doesn't make decisions. The people inside that building do. And if you want an example of that, look at the United States Postal Service. It's a very different thing uh, with Louis DeJoy running it than it would be with an actual human being running it who cares about getting people's mail delivered on time. The Department of Justice is a very different animal under Bill Barr, who wants to be uh, a wing of the Trump political machine, than it would be with someone who actually believed in the apolitical intentions of the Department of Justice. Um, I believe in all those buildings. I believe in all those values. They are useless to us if they are run by people who don't believe in those values. And as Director Comey says, that starts at the very top. I'd only add that that um, that, that this election is, is really about how the sacredness of the rule of law as something that is bigger than we are. And it's what made Barry Goldwater and those Republicans march up to the White House and sit down with Nixon and say, you got to resign. We don't have that anymore. 
And so I think the rule of law is on the ballot as well. And uh, with that, you know, if we don't have that, then we're no longer the America that we uh, we keep telling everybody that we are. Um, I would like to get to one last question, if I may, and this is actually from one of our audience members. Um, this is a question from Roxy Two from Florida. If anything, what would Mr. Comey do differently <laughs> about the Russia investigation? Yeah, about the Russia investigation, so meaning the counterintelligence investigation into what Russia was doing, and then after that began into whether any Americans were working with them, focused on four people associated or formerly associated with the Trump campaign. I don't think that I would do anything differently in the main. I mean, there was never any serious consideration given to publicizing that. I still think that was the right decision for a bunch of reasons. We didn't know whether there was a connection to any Americans there. It would have blown the investigation to be talking about it and been brutally unfair because we didn't know whether there was anything at all to it. And so I think that was done in a responsible way. There's a number of smaller things, mistakes made in small parts of the investigation in connection with one particular uh, Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act wiretap request. There was a bunch of sloppiness. If I had a magic wand, I'd go fix all that. But in the main, I think we did it and staffed it in a professional way. And the best thing about all the many, many investigations of us has been the conclusion by the Inspector General, who is a hard case, that there was no political bias in conducting that investigation or in the Clinton investigation. I'm proud of that fact. It gets lost in the goalpost moving that goes on a lot, but it's a really important thing and a testament to the people of that institution. Oh, I have so many more questions, but unfortunately we are out of time. Gentlemen, thank you so very much for joining us. Thanks for having um, us. Can I add one thing, Ann? Do we have a second for me to add one thing? Um, there have been uh, criticisms uh, from both the right and left about the audacity of making a story about James Comey. It seems like the one thing that unites America is that everybody's mad at him. Um, and I just want to say that James Comey has never said a word in public that's been proven untrue, not once. And nothing he said in public has even been shaky. Um, you compare that with the 250,000 lies or whatever the number is, 25,000 lies that Donald Trump has told since becoming president and the, the rest of the people in his administration who carry the water for him. Um, my money's on Comey, and I'm very, very proud to have told uh, this story. Fair enough. Fair thank enough. you, Billy. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you, Director Comey. And thank to all of our viewers for tuning in. We do have a great lineup of guests this week on Washington Post Live, including award-winning filmmakers Nick Quested and Sebastian Younger, who will talk about their new documentary, Blood on the Wall, and Howard University President Wayne Frederick. So head to Washington Post live.com to learn more. And once again, I'm Ann Hornaday. Thanks for watching WashingtonPostLive.com. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.